You probably know that, that barking does not make a dog a dog. I, I thought about this as I was listening to my dog bark this morning. I thought, you know, the barking doesn't make the dog a dog. He barks because he's a dog. It expresses just what he is by nature. You hear barking and you go, there's a dog. Why? Well, because dogs bark. Or to use a softer illustration, you know, a sweet and pleasant aroma isn't what makes perfume perfume. But rather the work of the perfumer makes the perfume. Which then exudes this sort of sweet and pleasant aroma because it's perfume. It smells wonderful because of its biochemical nature. It smells wonderful because of what's in it. And so in a similar way, we could say that good works do not redeem people. They are the natural effects of redeemed people. Good deeds do not make Christians. They express Christians. They evidence the new spiritual nature of Christians. So we see there in Titus 3, verse 5, where Paul said that God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So it's the good work of Jesus Christ applied to us through the Holy Spirit that saves us. And that is why Paul can say in verse 1 of chapter 3 that we are to be ready for every good work. He said something similar to the Ephesians. This is Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Here's how we're saved. By grace, through faith. And this is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That means we're not saved by our good works, but we are saved for good works, to do good works. The order is really important. And I would say it's that order that, that separates the Christian gospel from basically every other religion in the world, every religion in the world, that is going to teach You're saved in some way by your works, whether entirely by your works or in some cooperation with God. And then you keep doing good works to stay commendable to God. Whereas the Christian gospel says, no, we're saved by grace, through faith, not of our doing, it's a gift of God, not as a result of our works so that no one would boast. And now that we're saved, we work. We labor for his glory. That's one side of what we'll look at in this passage. But then there's another facet to this in the church, and it's this, that redeemed people are helped in devoting themselves to good works under certain conditions. We need help. And namely, within a church that is focused upon Christ, that is insistent upon the gospel, and that is committed to Christ-centered unity that hearts devoted to good works thrive in a certain kind of environment. 
Because when, again, we think about a perfumer who's making perfume, he or she will make that perfume under certain conditions. If someone keeps barging into their shop, mixing ingredients in, messing with their equipment, then the ability of the perfumer to make good perfume is going to be harmed. Or if someone just walks into the shop where they sell that perfume and keeps dumping piles of manure in the shop, it's going to be really hard to detect the smell of the perfume in the midst of all those competing scents, all those contaminating influences. And so something similar may be said of the church, the household of the living God, where people justified by his grace now devote themselves to good works. And so if the household becomes a place of silly argument, a place where we debate and dispute over rules and preferences and the carpet color and the light fixtures and who knows what else, then devotion to good works will be replaced by devotion to winning arguments. Always has, always will. That if divisive tendencies go unchecked, if divisive people just get to run free and uncorrected in the household of the living God, then devotion to good works will actually be squeezed out by devotion to teams and to factions and to whose side are you on. We saw this in Corinth. We see this in Corinth when we read about just that church that is dividing under Apollos and under Cephas and under Jesus and they each have their leader and And so there happened to be a church that was actually very unfruitful in good works because they didn't have time for good works. (laughs) They didn't have time to be devoted to loving and serving others. They were so distracted by winning their debates, winning their arguments. So Cod did not want this in Crete where Titus had been left to set in order the things that remain, Paul said, and to teach sound doctrine. And God doesn't want this in any church. God doesn't want that in Delray Baptist Church. Where God leaves for us these kinds of letters of Paul to Titus with the exhortation here to insist upon certain things. To insist upon the truths of the gospel. To insist upon the doctrines of grace. And to do that in order to keep us from foolish controversies to keep us from debates about the law, to keep us from quarrels. So that brings us to our big idea for this morning, and that is that a heart devoted to good works necessarily flows from a heart regenerated and renewed by the Holy Spirit. And that heart grows within a church household that refuses to entertain distracting arguments and divisive people in order to bear unto God the fruit of good works. That's one way to sum up verses 8 through 15. So we're going to have two main points today. Just a heart for good works. Where does that really come from? And then secondly, a household Of good works, and how important is that for there to be good works in a certain kind of environment? And then I'll close not so much with a point, but just with a word of encouragement. So, a heart for good works, point one. 
You see there in verse 8 where he begins with this saying is trustworthy. Which refers back to what Paul just said in verses 4 through 6. Where he says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's the saying that Paul is saying is trustworthy. And then even more, he says, insist on these things. Insist on these things. Insist on these things. Why, we might ask. Does he say this? He doesn't throw that term around a lot, insist on these things. Why does he use it here? Why insist on the goodness of God and the loving kindness of God and the mercy of God as the reason for our salvation? Why insist upon the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit? Why insist upon justification by grace and the hope of eternal life? There could be many reasons we give. I'll just give two this morning. One is the eternal fate of souls rests on faith in that message. That's one reason. We are sinners saved by the grace of God alone through Jesus Christ alone, poured out upon us by the Holy Spirit alone, received through faith alone. That's how souls are redeemed, that's how people are saved. And so we're going to insist upon those things because there's salvation in no other name but Jesus Christ. There's salvation by no other means but by rebirth of the Holy Spirit. There's salvation that comes through no other, from no other person but God the Father and his goodness. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness but according to his own mercy. Again, verse 5. So we insist on these things because it refutes what is the common reflex and impulse of every human in all the world, and that is to work for salvation. That's, That's not a foreign idea to the human race. It comes naturally to us. And so you don't have to insist on people working harder to improve themselves. You don't have to insist on people, if they're going to try to be saved, to be saved by their effort. That's what we instinctively do. You have to insist upon salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, birthed by the Spirit alone. But then secondly, a second reason to insist is because the fruitfulness of God's people in this world rests upon proclaiming and believing these things and stirring up these things, that insisting upon these things actually motivates good works. And so it rightly refutes the error that works don't matter that you're saved by grace alone, so just coast it home. And so insisting upon these things also guards us from that other ditch that, well, then works don't matter then if works don't save me. What Paul is going to show here is no, works do matter because grace saves you. Verse 8, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Insist, 
on the gospel so that those who have believed the gospel may be careful to devote themselves to good works. In other words, an honest remembrance of what we were apart from Christ, of what we would be apart from Christ, with a clear understanding of God's grace poured out on us in Christ actually feeds our devotion to good works. And this is what I mean by this is not a merely human book. This is not how we think. Here's what I mean, that Paul is saying that insistence upon the truths of the gospel, that we're saved by the grace of God, not works, actually produces good works. Whereas teaching that we're saved by good works doesn't actually produce good works at all but controversies and quarrels about the law. That's interesting, isn't it? I'll say it again, that he's saying that insistence upon the truths of the gospel that we're saved by the grace of God, not works, actually produces good works. Whereas teaching that we're saved by good works doesn't actually produce good works at all, but it produces arguments and quarrels about the law. And we certainly see that throughout the scripture. We especially see that in the gospels as Jesus is interacting with Pharisees and Sadducees where the the religious leaders are going to see his disciples plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath. And they're going to walk up to Jesus and say, don't you, they're doing what's not lawful to do. Like God is in the flesh right in front of them. And they want to debate about plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath day. That's why Jesus is going to say, well, have you not read where David went in and ate the bread of the presence and he gave it to all those who were with him? And he's going to say, and I say, someone's greater than David's here. He's going to talk about how, Jesus, how he's the Lord of the Sabbath. So and again, Jesus is constantly pushing back on this distraction by quarrels about the law. Like, here is God in the flesh come for your salvation and you want to talk about heads of grain. You want to talk about how to wash your hands before eating. You want to talk about what, how far you can walk on the Sabbath day without violating the law and Jesus is reading from Isaiah right in front of you. So that is not just a first century problem. That is a every century problem. The doctrines of grace are, look at verse 8, excellent and profitable, whereas quarrels about the law are unprofitable and worthless. And the Apostle Paul really is a case in point for this, that before his conversion on the road to Damascus, he was persecuting Christians in the name of God. He was one of the ones arguing and contending with Stephen about the law and about various things and was confounded by the wisdom that the Spirit had given Stephen. He was throwing Christians in prison in many ways because he just couldn't figure out a way to refute or destroy what they were saying. It just drove him crazy. But now listen to him in 1 Corinthians 15, 8 through 10, where he says, last of all, as one untimely born, meaning... He was born by the Holy Spirit late. All the other apostles had had sort of come to faith 
right there at the resurrection. They've been believing in Jesus, growing in faith in him, and then there's the resurrection and the spirit comes and the dots are connected. Well, Paul is going to be reborn later. And so he's going to say, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. He says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So he's aware of what he was. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. He's aware of how he's saved and why he's saved, the grace of God. But then listen, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And so Paul worked before, even in the name of God, but his work was worthless. It was in vain. Yet here, grace comes. And he says, once grace came, I worked harder than everybody. But not I. Grace in me. So we see here the importance of that order, especially in Paul's mind. He's like, no, grace compels works. When I remember what I was and see what God did to me in Christ, I'm motivated to work hard. In Luke 7, we read the story of an immoral woman to whom the Holy Spirit granted some kind of faith in Jesus Christ, enough where she realizes who he is. Her eyes are open to the Savior. She received forgiveness. And then her devotion to him is going to be poured out in heartfelt, heartfelt service to him. Listen to this in Luke 7 where Jesus, in the home of Simon the Pharisee, as this woman is weeping at his feet and washing his feet and anointing them with oil, he's going to turn and address Simon the host, this Pharisee. And Jesus, turning to the woman, said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. So here's Simon, who believed in his pedigree and who believed in his good works and that those merited him some kind of favor before God and even salvation. So here's the man that's there who thinks, okay, the way you get reconciled to God is through your own righteousness, your own hard work. Yet we see in the scene he's just casually reclined at the table in judgment of the woman and even in judgment of Christ. He's thinking in his own heart, if this were a true prophet of God, he would know what manner of woman this was. He's so busy evaluating everybody at the table that he doesn't have the energy or the time or the focus or the heart to actually devote himself to good works. He's so distracted by those other details, so unmoved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ that he's just sitting there while this woman who's fully aware of who she was and who she is, 
who's fully aware now of who this is, this one in whom forgiveness comes, and already has this sense of my sins are covered, my sins are forgiven in him. And what's she doing? She's working. She's washing his feet with tears. She's anointing him with oil. And what does he say? From the time I came in, she has not ceased. <laughs> you know. So social fears don't stop her. Public shame does not stop her. The location of this gathering doesn't stop her. Being tired doesn't stop her. Being hurt on her knees and on the ground doesn't stop her. She can't restrain herself. Her heart's devoted to good works. Because, to connect it back to the big idea, a heart devoted to good works necessarily flows from a heart that here in this case has been forgiven by the grace of God and Jesus Christ. And so here's the question for us, here's the question for you. Is your heart devoted to good works? And is your devotion to good works rooted in the grace of God that is at work in you? Can you say with Paul, not I, but the grace of God at work within me? Doesn't mean we don't have to sleep, we do. Doesn't mean we don't need breaks, we do. Doesn't mean we we don't realize, okay, we're finite beings that have limits, we are. But do we see in us a devotion to good works that is stirred up by the gospel, by the reality that we have been forgiven much, that stirs us to love much? May the Lord help us. This is why Paul is going to say, God's grace be with you all, because there are so many hindrances to good works. There's so many hindrances to devotion to good works. This is why the author of Hebrews is going to say, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. Why would he say that? Well, because love and good deeds, like any, you know, can just sink to the bottom of our hearts and just become sort of sediment there. And so we need the body of Christ. We need people. We need God's grace through others stirring up love and good deeds. And one of the ways Paul gives us, insist on these things. That's one of the ways we stir it up in each other, is reminding one another of the forgiveness that we have in Christ. Reminding one another of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Reminding one another of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Reminding one another of God's steadfast love and goodness that's poured out for us in Christ. And so he's saying here, insist on those things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. It's important because there are many hindrances that can even arise in the church, which brings us to point two, a household of good works. Then in order to insist on these things, Titus had to, verse 9, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. I don't know if any of you have ever played baseball or coached baseball or just participated in any way in baseball or witnessed it. If you have, at some point, you've probably experienced the moment where you stand at the plate in front of a trash-talking catcher. 
But as you're standing there ready to bat, he starts asking you about your favorite kinds of food. And by trash talking, I can just mean anything like that. What's your favorite kind of food? You married, not married? You have kids, no kids? Why are you so short? Why are you so tall? Sometimes they move into your mama jokes. Sometimes they move into who knows what. They may tell jokes, sometimes very funny ones. They'll ask questions about irrelevant things. They'll even drop an insult or two. Anything to distract you from your one and only job, which is what? Hit the ball. Watch the ball and hit the ball. That's it. Even the greatest hitters in the world are actually not able to withstand great trash talking from a catcher, which is why even in the pros it's considered really bad sportsmanship. And great umpires actually won't allow it. Even though it's not in the rules you can't do it, great umpires usually won't allow it because they realize even some of the greatest hitters lose focus when distracted by even the most petty, irrelevant, silly things. And that's just baseball. How much more in the church, if we're to be a household of good works, do we need focus in the right place? And how much does Satan love just to weasel his way in and just start trash-talking? Like if we're called to stir one another up to love and good deeds, well then what is he busy stirring up in the church? And he says it, foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, things that are unprofitable and worthless. This is so important. If you remember back to Titus chapter 1, there were false teachers in Crete, especially verse 10, the circumcision party who are suggesting that the way you turn Cretans into Christians is through the observation of the old covenant law, that that's how it happens. And Paul said in verse 11 of chapter 1, they must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families. So rather than going forth in the name of Jesus Christ to make disciples of all nations, they were distracted by all kinds of questions and disputes about foods and about clothing and about washings and about symbols and about ceremonies and about days. And this was upsetting whole households. You could see how. Just, okay, I thought we could eat pork, but I guess we can't. Or maybe we can, or maybe it depends on the day or how you cook it. So maybe we sinned in it, or maybe we didn't. Or I didn't think circumcision saved me, but apparently it does. Or does it? Or does it not? Or should I just get circumcised to play it safe? Or I thought I could regard every day as the same unto God, but apparently all this stuff I've been doing on the Sabbath day is actually wrong and evil, and it condemns me to hell. So can I water the yard? Can I not water the yard? Can I walk to the mailbox? Can I not walk to the mailbox? Am I allowed to drive? Can I not drive? Do we need to get, convene like a bunch of meetings to figure all that out? I knew baptism was important, but apparently the dunking in the water actually saves me. So what if I didn't go under all the way? What if like I had a finger still above the water or a little bit of my hair? Do I need to do it again? Should I just get baptized every year to be safe? Right? I mean, those are, those are fears and worries and questions that just get stirred up. 
What do we do about all the religious festivals and feasts, about washing our hands a certain way, about dressing a certain way? So am I saved? Am I secure in Christ? Am I not secure in Christ? Is it more in my hands than I realized? And if so, how much and where? So again, you could see where, how quickly we lose focus from the gospel, from Christ, from in whom all the fullness of deity dwells. These are just a few examples. And so Paul knew the Cretans would never be transformed, chapter 1, verse 14, by devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Rather, they would be transformed by the work of God and Jesus Christ on their behalf. They would be transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit in bringing new birth and new life to their souls. And this is going to be why Paul's going to charge Titus in chapter 2, verse 1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. In chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Then why Paul's going to say in chapter 3, verse 8, insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And then in verse 14, to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful and why we must avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. Even that word avoid there, peristomai, literally means turn your back upon. Turn your back upon foolish controversies. Don't entertain it. That's why we're not going to have a class here at Delray on the Da Vinci Code. You know, just foolish controversies. We're not going to do it. We're not going to study genealogies or try to make a case for who should be leaders in the church based on whether or not you descend from John Owen or Jonathan Edwards or the tribe of Levi or who your great-great-grandfather, grandmother, who they were, is going to determine what role you have. We're not going to dispute about the end times in the details as if the fates of souls are going to rest on sort of the placement of the rapture, exactly where it comes. To have beliefs about those things, very well. To study those things, great. But we're not going to dispute about where the rapture is falls. Dissensions, quarrels about the law, so we're not going to debate whether or not you have to be circumcised or not, whether you have to circumcise your sons or not, or you have to wash your hands in a certain way, or exactly what time of morning we need to have the service, or what time of morning we need to gather in this way or do that. Again, just things that quarrels about the law that don't produce hearts devoted to good works. Again, those are just a few examples. We could probably identify a thousand different controversies that are foolish. And there's going to be a new one every month, a hundred new ones every year. And so Christians are charged by God with keeping a special kind of tunnel vision, a focus 
He's going to say something similar. Paul is to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 20 through 21. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you, the gospel, the word of God, the ministry. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Or 2 Timothy 2, 16, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth. There's that same word again. Saying that the resurrection has already happened, they are upsetting the faith of some. So that has drastic consequences in the church. So Paul's saying, avoid it. Don't allow it. Don't entertain it. It will upset the faith of son. It will swerve many from the truth. That's why he's going to say to us that if any stirs division, we are to warn them. Verse 10, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once or twice. So it doesn't mean someone stirs up division in these ways and we just throw them out or we just humiliate them publicly. Or sin, we, we don't, know. We, we warn them. In love, we warn them. We go to passages of the Scripture and show this is where foolish controversies and dissensions goes to swerving from the truth. We'll lovingly and patiently warn. It even says here once and then twice. We even see just the patience of God in it. But then after once or twice, says have nothing more to do with them, which could mean excommunication. It could mean we ask that man or woman to leave and not come until there's repentance. Or the actual Greek word there means to leave out of account. So it could just mean you ask them not to speak any longer in the gathering of the saints. And so you leave them out of any discussion. You regard them to be of no account. And he says because he's warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Now, it may feel to some of you like that seems unloving to say that about somebody, to warn them a couple times and then have nothing to do with them. Well, unless you've ever seen the effects in a church of false teaching and dissensions and controversies when they take root and take off. Have any of you ever been in a church that eats itself alive over years? The strife, the confusion, how many people get burned by churches where falsehood is taught, but not just that, but just deeds become vicious and unkind. And the guard that Paul is actually giving for us here is insisting upon the gospel and teaching the doctrines of grace and keeping Christ the main thing and preaching the word of God and not being drawn off into foolish controversies so that people will keep loving each other. And so there are times, sadly, where love for the church, love for the household of God, love for the flock requires this kind of warning and then turning our back upon the one who refuses to listen. May the Lord help us. You know, and I praise God that 
at least in this season of our church, in the last few years, we have never had to do this. And that's a, that's a mercy of God. I pray we never will. If Jesus tarries a hundred years, I pray the day will never come where we have to do this. Because I pray that we would be truth-speaking and loving in our service to one another. And that's why I want to close just with a word of encouragement. Because it is impossible for me, I think, to convey just the joy I feel as a pastor. Just... In these 14 months now we've been here, just I have to conclude that, that you are devoted to good works, that you are joyful in your service of one another, that never once have we had to step in and, and warn and warn and warn about foolish controversies, but what just Garrett and I were talking about this just this last week, we just get to watch and see the grace of God displaying itself in the good works of the saints who are here. Praise God for this. I wrote a few down. Just the innumerable ways in which you serve tirelessly just on Sunday mornings and throughout the day to prepare this building as a place to worship the Lord our God. The amount of time and effort and work that goes into just preparing a building, setting up a building, setting up audio and sound and greeting one another with kindness and joy, praying for those in need, greeting visitors with warmth and generosity. The many of you who teach our children week after week after week, who change diapers and wipe snotty noses week after week, singing, strengthening your pastors in the ministry of the word through your prayer, through your encouragement, celebrating the Lord's Supper, rejoicing in baptisms, as we'll have a chance to do this morning, just the innumerable ways in which you have helped in times of urgent need. You give rides, you give meals, you give care packages to missionaries. There'll be times where I walk out of my office and I can't actually move because there's so much stuff you brought out to donate. I love that I have to climb over boxes and we have to figure out, okay, what do we what do we do with all this stuff that people are giving? You give money, you give time, you give comfort, you give prayer, you read scripture, you, you visit widows. The countless hours devoted by countless members to help one another load trucks and move households. We could literally, we won't, but we could have a moving ministry. We never will. Because we just delight in the fact that that just happens in the body of Christ. Just the, the number of trucks that have been loaded and unloaded just in the last 12 months alone. Where you just, you, we just serve one another. Cleaning apartments and fixing cars. Mowing yards, repairing sinks. Just the hours you'll put into to just making weddings here beautiful and delightful for those who are in them making funerals warm and comforting to those who are grieving, garage sales for missions, set up, clean up, then you set up and clean up, and then you set up and you clean up, and then there's more set up and there's more clean up. All so that the saints can gather and be the church. 
marvelous ways in which you don't fight and bicker about silly things. You're not divisive. I praise God that you teach the truth, that we had three Growing in Grace times this morning where you can walk in and hear brothers teaching from the Scripture. And I don't get phone calls Sunday afternoon or Monday morning saying, you will not believe what just got taught in this class. Just praise God. We can't take that for granted. The countless hours you devote to bearing burdens, to hearing confessions, to offering intercession and prayer. I've overheard these conversations, comforting with the gospel, exhorting with the word, reminding of God's promises, crying together, studying scripture together, remembering promises together, reading books together, parenting together, bearing loved ones together, facing trials together, and on and on. I could probably go another hour of just to convey as elders, and I speak for all the elders and saying what a joy it is to be your elders. What a joy it is to see your devotion to good works that we know is the grace of God working in you. And it's why we'll continue to insist on these things and preach and teach these things so that the grace of God will just continually work through these things in you and in us so that we'll be a household devoted to good works. So my only admonition, I can only think of one this morning, and that is to continue in these good things. That's your only admonition to walk away with. Continue. Persevere in these things. Keep believing the gospel. Keep studying the word. Keep meditating upon his promises. Keep loving one another and serving one another and praying for one another and praying with one another and doing it all the more until the day that Christ returns. Praise God the faith is not that complex. The hardest part is staying focused, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Because back to the big idea, hope or a heart devoted to good works necessarily flows from hearts that are regenerated and renewed by the Holy Spirit. And it depends upon a church that refuses to entertain distracting arguments and divisive people in order to bear the fruit of good works to our God who is worthy of good works. As we read in Psalm 45 this morning, who is the worker of good works. There is no one who does more good works than God. And so we would only expect that those who are born again of his spirit, those who are being conformed more and more to his image, will be about good works. May the Lord help us be this kind of church, remain this kind of church until Christ returns. Let's pray.